0: Welcome to The Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves, and hopefully, the world. And now, here are John Dupuis, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with The Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, episode number two, The Disease of Addiction.
1: Well, 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 welcome back, everyone. Good morning, good day, good evening, good night. See you later. No, we'll see you now. Uh, wherever you're on the planet uh, and what time zone you are and when you're listening to this, uh, we're back. And this is the second uh, of our ongoing uh, podcast, The Journey of Integral Recovery. And hopefully this is something we will travel together over the months and years to come as um, we collaborate and the universe collaborates with us. Well, let me just say this is a second one, and the last last program I think was really energized and really interesting, but we were we were recovering a lot of stuff, and so this is really an enormous subject. So normally when I teach, I like to start from a very broad-based you know strategic you know fifty thousand foot overview and then kind of funnel it down into specifics. and each part of this integral model, this integral journey, this integral map, these integral practices are something that we can just. Sink into infinitely because the more you do it, the deeper it gets. But right now, we're trying to to paint a a broad overview just so we can kind of get a taste of what we're heading into. And I think one of the most important things that has happened in the field of addiction in the last 30 or 40, if not 50 years, is the fact that the the realization it is a physical brain disease. Okay. And somewhere back when, when the AA was started in 1939. I don't know exactly how it happened, but the medical profession abandoned alcoholics and addicts and said, let the police deal with it. Let's lock them up. Or, and then that beautiful flower of compassion and mercy, AA and the 12 steps, uh, emerged and said, no, we care. Come, we'll work together to try to save our lives and humility and dedication. Um,
0: medicine just uh, couldn't solve it. And it was something that people had started to view as a moral failing. So that yes. was, unfortunately, the progression.
1: And in the beginning of the book, you know, they talk about it. It's, it it looks like an allergy, which is like, makes a lot of sense because it does look like an allergy. You know, some people can, you know, drink whiskey. That's horrible. And they never drink whiskey again. And some people can drink whiskey. Oh, that's kind of nice. And some people drink whiskey and they can't stop drinking whiskey. Like an allergy. You know, why do some people, why can some people drink and other people not drink? Like, yikes. I don't know. I really don't quite know that. It does, however, seem to be genetic. And that comes from not just studies that I've read, but just talking with hundreds of students over decades. My first class is how many of you have a history of alcoholism or addiction in your family? And it's almost 100%. Okay, it's almost 100%. And interestingly, and most people start when they're young. Bob, you're the exception to the rule. Yeah. And, and for years, I would say I never actually talked to anybody who start, you know, fell off the wagon or into this thing uh, when they were older. And you did so that, and I and I have heard about it, but that is rare. But it does happen. But most John,
2: most of it happens when people John, are very let young. Jump, let me jump in here with something. Absolutely, I think you know this story. But here's the irony: is that what kept me away from drinking and drugs was that I have huge genetic loading on both sides, on my mother's side and on my father's side, all the way back. All the men in my family, grandfathers, uncles, cousins, all of them are addicts, and so i was I was uh, one exception to that until I was no longer an exception, so ironically it's what kept me away from it as long as it did so I'm not even sure that i'm a, a that much of a deviant uh, statistically because it's almost predictable. It just hit me later on when I finally kind of let the let my guard down for lots of different reasons. So there you have the fuller picture I think
1: and I was falling off the wagon into the deep end of addiction, and I read about it. my best friend uh, became a heroin addict and relationships were breaking up, and I got into kind of a fundamentalist, really structured Christian yeah. thing when I was 14. It completely saved my butt from, from alcohol. I did, so I almost, through my whole adolescence, I didn't do any drugs or alcohol, so I was protected by that religious structure, which turned out to be a really rotten structure. But, you know, looking back, in retrospect, the good part was is that I didn't, uh, it kept me clean for many years, yeah. informative years. It was really, yeah. really useful. So, but let's talk about this disease thing. Even before I'd heard of Intricle, when I was just starting to do this, there was a doctor who lives up in Salt Lake City, and I'm in southern Utah, A uh, Dr. Kevin McCauley, and he has really popularized this whole idea of it is a brain disease, and it's really, he has a, what is, he has a, uh, a Pleasure Unwoven. Pleasure Unwoven, so good. You yeah, know, and they, they did this, this was a minor budget, and it's just so humorous, and it's so beautiful. They're driving around southern Utah and, and going through this thing and really spelling it out in a way that's really compelling, so I really recommend that. Big big kudos oh, to doctors. Yeah. I'm a colleague. Yes. But this is a deal. Back in, back in the 50s, there were these famous experiments called the old experiments. And they were trying to find out what in the hell is going on with addiction. Why do people, you know, just drink themselves to death or drug themselves to death and have these huge personality changes and go crazy and da da, da, da. What's, What part of the brain? And so they use mice or rats. Bless them. They're little mammals that people seem to feel okay doing that stuff with. And they took these fellows and they have a triune brain. Uh, like us, smaller, a little more primitive. Hopefully,
0: Try and, and they started the, they, uh, the three parts. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The 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 kind of the primitive reptilian, the limbic system, and then the the, the free, uh, the frontal cortex. And it's really a map of, of evolution. It starts the, the earliest part of the brain is back here with our earliest ancestors and reptiles, and it moves up into mammals and emotions, and then it moves into the more evolved kind of human. You know, all the stuff that we do are rational and beliefs and, and art and mathematics and science and all the stuff we do as humans that are pretty distinct from other creatures for the most part, although they're finding out apes are a lot more capable, our closest ancestors and dogs. Oh my God, don't get me on dogs. They're brilliant. But anyway, so let's get back to Dr. Ols and the rats. So they started out with these super thin little needles injecting uh, and the drug that was chosen was cocaine because it's fast acting. Many of you guys have used coke it's like oh yeah oh better do some more and the, and, the, and the fun begins right so they would use that and they expected to find you know the locus because of, you know, the behavioral changes all the weird stuff and this is generally supposed to be the controlling part of the brain that you know you can move throughout and catch a bus and repress your urges or whatever it might be that's supposed to be the part well they found nothing nothing happened then they went to the limbic system which was deals with emotional life. And they thought they were going to find it there because of the, we talk about, you know, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. One of the, not always, but often, you see this radical personality change. I don't know in your guys' history and everything, but, you know, a really cool mm-hmm. guy turns into a raging you know, limited, Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah.
1: <laughs> and you do things you would never do, whether sexually or just violently or rudely or stupidly or whatever that is. Yeah. So, and they, and they were in the limbic system and they didn't see nothing happening darn, maybe, you know, who knows? And so then they went to the earliest, the reptilian brain the, uh, the reward system, you know, where the brain rewards, uh, like evolutionary, really necessary things. Okay. Like food and flight and fight defense and procreation and all these, these basic urges. And, you know, all of these things are great. That's why people hunt, you know, you shoot the animal and it's like some, ancient ancestral thing, you know, blood in the forest, and, uh, you know, you get this big rush for sports or contact sports or tennis or martial arts. These, these things are really, you know, they're dopamine floods the brain. And so when they, they put the cocaine into this part of the brain, all of a sudden the mice were like, Doing! you know, and they started, you know, they, it was active at you know, game one. The cocaine was affecting them, the heart, everything. And then very quickly, these mice became addicted. And they started setting up things where the mice could control the input or the, the injection into their brains directly if they flicked a the little thing with their feet and they were like <laughs> and then they would start doing things. Well, they first of all they found they would starve to death just to keep the cocaine going. Yeah. So they wouldn't eat. They just keep cocaine, cocaine until they'd actually starve to death. And then they started putting electricity under the floor where they'd have to go. And they started shocking them and they'd still go back or heat and they still go back to keep the, the cocaine going. You start, okay, these mice are addicted to cocaine. This is this is similar to everybody who's been an addict, you know, going against your uh, you know it's hurting you. You know it's a part of you does anyway, but you gotta have you gotta have it and this monster develops inside of you and everything just begins to fall apart and the cravings become more and more overpowering. The the highs become lower, the suffering becomes more and it's just ah and you keep doing it anyway, and you can't stop, it. and you wanna stop, but you can't, craziness. So mice were addicts, okay, they found, and they found what part, and then of course, they extrapolated that to higher mammals, and it found the same thing in human beings. So it's that part of the brain, it is a disease of the reptilian brain stem, of the reward system, the dopamine system, and what happens is soon, uh, in, in the beginning of, of the addiction, when your brain is still somewhat healthy, and maybe addicts, we'll talk about this later, you know, have a predisposition because maybe you're a quart low or a few ounces low of dopamine and serotonin, you don't feel good in your own skin anyway. So they found where it was in the brain and that it, if, if rats or mice can become addicts, so what does that say about human beings? And before you said, oh, it's an addictive personality or this or that. And uh, I think Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, the whole kind of meta message underneath that is that it's something shameful you're a bad person, a weak person, and we can't let that out on the streets because people will think less of you. And the truth is, people did think less of you. And there was definitely a need for that container and that safety and that anonymity, but you don't see that with cancer victims or, you know, people wounded in the war, you know, hi, we're wounded anonymous, or, you know, we're cancer victims anonymous, but it was alcoholics anonymous or cocaine anonymous, because it seemed to be something shameful. So anyway, what Dr. Ols discovered it was a physical disorder of the the functioning of the brain. And uh, the more you use the drugs, the less dopamine and the less serotonin, like the satiated feel-good in your own body, uh, be satisfied, was available. And so you're using the pseudodopamine uh, to reinforce it. And the more and more you use it, and and then the survival part of the brain, the, the activity that produces the most dopamine is the one that's considered the most important. So as the brain gets flooded with this stuff, it's saying, this is more important than sex. This is more important than food. This is more important than family, than God, than country, than anything. And it just becomes the overwhelming growing obsession until the whole system collapses. And And
0: that's so important because it's not a choice at that point. What's going on is, like you said, it's hijacking that system. It cannot be a moral failing because you are not in control of it. It is overriding your ability to make decisions about what's important to you. That artificial dopamine stimulation is just a seeking and it becomes something that you're doing for purposes of survival, even when it's making you miserable, even when you know it's killing you, even when you feel terrible for hurting yourself and the people around you. It is, it is not something that you can break easily without addressing the fact that there's something physical going on there and that there shouldn't be shame around admitting that or addressing that. That's um, really one of the things that I hope we can share and, and spread and emphasize through this podcast and the other work we're doing to change that perception because the shame around the disease, the shame that people are made to feel for having it is a huge barrier to actually getting better and doing meaningful work to to heal the damage, not only to your body, but to your relationships and the world that the disease has caused. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that even being exposed to that information can help relieve that shame and start the healing process for people who have experienced it.
2: Yeah, I I want to dovetail with, with what you're saying, Doug. Uh, Just this past Wednesday, I lead a men's group uh, at a local treatment center, Beginnings Treatment Centers uh, here in uh, Orange County. I lead it every Wednesday. And this past Wednesday, this particular group, we address shame and stigma around addiction. That's the topic of the group as uh, uh, the two most significant barriers to sustain successful recovery. And uh, Mm -hmm. a primary means in which I address this is by bringing in good information, like what John is mentioning right now. And I had a client, I can picture him with the LaPelle, about midway through the group, he looked at his big, his eyes were wide open, and he said, I'm having an aha experience. And it was just the awareness. That it could be just exactly what you said right now about the Oles experiment. when you can make that transit from only feeling like you're a moral failure into there's something going on biologically, and I'm not hopeless. Uh, I've, I've actually, there, there's some steps I can take to address this but that underneath all of this is, is, is the, the commandeering or the hijacking, as you put it, Doug, of the brain. That's a very different entry point into um, looking and understanding addiction and also in terms of beginning to move towards recovery. And it's not just theoretical for me. It's not even clinical for me. Doug, you can probably resonate with this. Part of why I got into studying the addiction in the brain is that I realized I've got to find some place out of the hellhole I'm in of self-stigmatization—that's really what psychology calls shame—is where we stigmatize ourselves. It's where I—I I bought what's societally, culturally out there. I bought what I had inside of myself in terms of violating my own moral values and so on. I needed—I knew I needed another standpoint, and I was starting from scratch. I was actually starting from less than zero. So, John, the information you're providing right now uh, saved my life, and I think that it saves the lives of other uh, addicts early in recovery that we're working with Doug uh, is to provide this information. You probably have your own version of it, but uh, this is, this is like holy writ to me. Some people get inspired by the Bible. I get inspired by neuroscience.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that could be, you know, that could be very well. You know, the the scripture are part of the scripture of our time because it's it's changed everything. You can't have a discussion about sports, religion, psychology, politics, anything without
2: bringing the brain into
1: it. If you're going to have something that, uh, you know, that's deeply informed. So
2: it's huge. I have to tell you a story, uh, you guys, is that when I started graduate school, I started in the fall of 1979. My first advising professor in graduate school was right back from Russia. He'd been studying for the last several years with Alexander Luria at that point was the world's most famous neuroscientist was this guy's teacher. My professor was Lawrence Vladimir Majovsky. So you can kind of get the connection there. So this is my first professor. My first course in graduate school was a six-hour course every Monday in neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. Every student in the course besides me had been a pre-med major that decided to go into psychology. I had been a drummer. Before I went to psychology, so I scrambled. We looked at slides of sheep brains to understand brain structure in that course. But I can still remember that course, the conventional wisdom. For example, this was before there was any notion of neuroplasticity. So the idea that a brain can change over a lifetime, There were conventional wisdom, this is like cutting-edge neuroscience, is that the brain stops developing in any meaningful way in terms of developing new skills uh, intellectually, let's say, Around age 25, that's all been overturned in the last 20 years <laughs> because this is all pre brain scan. There weren't any, there were whatever means there were, but there wasn't anything like a CAT scan or a PET scan or a functional MRI. And so it's really radical what we're talking about. John, you're citing the Oles experiment from the 50s, but look at what's happened in the last 20 years to really underscore the, uh, the salience or the importance of the brain and understanding neuroscience in all domains, but particularly with addiction. It's like we know stuff. It literally was not known. And I'm, I'm a Exhibit A. When I started graduate school, most of what I studied in terms of the premises of neuroscience had been overturned by the last 20 years. Pretty humbling, but also liberating. Yeah, you know, they've actually seen uh, that
1: the cocaine addiction, for example, they can track it and see it out, actually begins to change yeah. the genes. Yeah. Genetic uh, thing. Now, on the, other, the good side of the story, recovery. Begins yeah. to change the genes in a positive way too. Yeah. So this is very, it's very uh, plastic. Yeah, just you know, when we're all we're talking about, you know, organic and holistic things to say, the brain is plastic. It's like, you know, you think of Dustin Hoffman and remember what was it? Uh,
2: Rain, Rain. <laughs> rain.
1: <laughs> no, 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 it was in the sixties. Oh God, his biggest movie, uh, Mrs. Robinson. Oh yes, uh,
0: uh, The Graduate. Right. Okay, now. we
1: just dated ourselves. You know, every <laughs> yeah. probably your generation, The Graduate, and everything. Anyway, he's a just, he's just, he's college student graduate coming back, and he goes into the, all these upper-middle-class rich guys are partying drinking, and he walks in, and the guy gets them, plastics, plastics. you got to get into plastics. <laughs> <And he went. laughs> anyway, so yeah, to say the brain is plastic means it's very changeable and evolvable from moment to moment. The brain is just this dynamic system, and we can crash it really quick, or we can rebuild it and make it function at higher levels than we ever imagined, even into our very late years.
2: John, there's a postscript I want to add in here, uh, and it's also kind of points in a direction that will go over time. I'm sure what you're talking about right now. One of the huge additions it provides, in my view, is is to the twelve step programs. And you you made reference to this uh, in the in the previous episode. Is that a program that, that has its origins in the 1930s, and we're almost a century coming up on a century later, 80 years later? There's uh, every reason to believe that the advances that we're talking about in science. Uh, can advance our understanding of addiction and also that they would influence the language of of a program that was developed in many ways pre-scientifically, certainly pre-brain scientifically. It's nothing against uh, AA or NA or the big book. I'm, I'm studying the big book right now with an eye towards looking at where its assertions still stand and then where there are limitations. And one of those critiques I'm bringing is looking at the the very kind of rudimentary science that informed it. And we have so much more information right now. It's not about throwing out the big book. In the spirit of Ken Wilber, it's about transcending and including it, it seems like to me. What's to be added? This is just one variable, but what's to be added from neuroscience is massive. The thing that the language, I just read this in the last week, the language of talking about a brain allergy, that wasn't a wrong idea. It was on the right track, but we have so much more detail to fill that out now. So, uh, this this that we're talking about can hugely complement, I think, the best of what you find in the in the 12-step programs and in the big book. You know, with all the stuff
1: that AA doesn't do, AA and the 12-step program stood alone for oh, decades. Yeah. Yeah. They were the only thing available, you know, and yeah, it, it, it's an amazing, amazing heroic journey. And yeah, just because, you know, now, I mean, but they held the line. They were the only thing that was there for so long. So anyway, I just have tremendous love. And I can't go to meetings without crying. I mean, you know, I try to repress it like a good man. But uh, they're, they're always very moving. And you have people really getting honest about their lives and talking about the hell they've been through. And they're trying to get together and love each other and get well. I mean, that's yeah. just a tremendous story. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to what the knowledge that this is a, a brain disease, why is that so important? Because we're in a Western culture. okay, And if something ain't scientific, it ain't shit. You know, it doesn't matter. No value. Like the insurance companies, they won't pay for it. eh? It's an attitudinal thing. You know, stop it. It's a, it's a emotional. We don't do that. We do body. So being able to say, and we're going to get into the quadrant soon, but the upper right quadrant, it's a physical brain disease. It's also a spiritual disease, as it says in AA and an emotional disease. It's also a relational disease. It's also a professional environmental disease. I mean, you know, it, it affects all of these things, but just a... The starting place to say it is a uh, brain disease in the Western sense of the word. We can see it now. We can recognize it. It's a really important place to start. Then we can start saying, okay, all right, I have a disease. I have a disease. And changes in behaviors and awful things that you often do under the influence of, of this addictive, addictive trance is very shame-inducing. And I think a lot of us started using drugs because we were trying to, we already had toxic shame. From what other, you know, childhood stuff or wherever we got it, and so the, the booze or the whatever would help us feel better for a while. But then, as the voice of conscience still exists, unless you're a sociopath addict, that's another story. Mm-hmm. But it, you, you know, you start feeling worse, and then you feel worse and worse. Then you use more because basically you just want to annihilate yourself and get it over with more quickly. And that becomes a kind of suicidal just compulsion. that like gets twisted in with with the cravings, and it's it's a really dark. Scary story. So just at the beginning to say this is a disease, guys, okay, and we can treat it as a disease, um, holistically, intricately, and uh, we can get better. And not only can we get better, we can become better versions of ourselves than we ever dreamed possible. And the other thing that I, I bring out in the book, I just want to stay here briefly, is that I have found over the years that the people that I've worked with are addicts and our alcoholics are, are not our worst people. Often they're just the best of the best. They're our most sensitive, most creative, most kind and spiritual and gifted and artistic and all of these gifts. And, and the great tragedy of this disease, it takes those potential lives, those potential gifts for all of us and for themselves and just just kills it. Uh, it's it's
2: taking back these lives, you know. It's taking back the, these gifts that the world has been robbed of. John, may I ask you a question? i put it to both you and Doug. I fully endorse all that you're talking about, and and it's made a huge difference for me, but I wonder if we could take just a moment to look at, for somebody that, that comes to addiction uh, with toxic shame or as a function of addiction has developed vulnerability to shame, How what can we do to ensure that a disease model doesn't itself add shame? Any thoughts about that, either one of you? This is something that comes up occasionally in groups I lead, where I'm talking with the goal of empowering clients and the idea that I'm diseased itself can be interpreted as shameworthy, whether it's culturally or within one's family and so on. Just any thoughts that you have about that? Either one of you, I'd be curious to touch on that for just a moment.
1: Well, I, I certainly suffered suffer from great shame. And, and you know shame is the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is like, I did something bad and I feel bad about it. you know, Which is like, cool, you should, you did something bad. Uh, shame is like, I am bad. I'm just essentially not good enough. There's something in me that's just rotten and not good. And that's just the way things are. And you know, you've probably done more work in this, Bob. I know a lot of your 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 work has been working with with uh, people in shame. So
2: I just had an image as you were talking, John. It's it's a it's a memory from gosh, 45 years ago. I knew a physician. This wasn't in my family, I knew a physician who one time referred to. One of his patients as a cancer. This this woman is a cancer, and uh, something like that. In other words, he, he equated who she was with cancer, and I'm sure that was shorthand for him. So I'm not to judge that. But I remember thinking that doesn't land quite right for me. And then some years later, I was supervising somebody, a student in training, and he referred to a woman he was seeing as, "She's my borderline." And that was the second time I had this reaction. I thought, you know, calling somebody a cancer, or somebody calling somebody my borderline, what's entailed in that? And maybe it's implied in what you were just saying, the distinction between guilt and shame is that if I have a disease, if I have alcoholism, or if I have addiction, that's a different move than I am, I am, well, this is tricky, I am alcoholic as an identity. I am cancer. I am borderline. And it's a, fine, it's a fine distinction there, but it's the difference between looking at one. it seems like to me as a circumstance in my life, as a function of, of my exposure to alcohol and drugs, I'm vulnerable to that. And as Doug said earlier, I stop being able to choose when I stop. If I start, I really can't responsibly stop. And that's true for me. That's a different move than there's something wrong with my character or disposition that, that I have this disease. Does this make any sense, you guys, in terms of kind of a discriminating view of the one from the other? One is, is my identity, my character, my disposition. The other is my circumstance, my situation, my vulnerability. I feel like that difference makes a difference, but I want to run it by you guys. One of the things that I always struggled with AA meetings is that you would
0: introduce yourself as I'm Doug I am an alcoholic and right right you know as you said that is something that I have and it is a part of me but it is not my defining identity and being able to move beyond that is I think really important to recover you have to accept it but you cannot let it define you and that's that's a really interesting yeah. conversation that you could probably have around with any disease really yes to yes move yes beyond yeah. that and get beyond that uh yeah shame that's associated with it you should drive me crazy
1: you know going to meetings you know you have us and the normies like we're really sick and damaged and everybody's with normal and squared away basically functional not so Sherlock come on Everybody is dysfunctional, you know, we have different versions of it. And you you, yeah. you what you said was good, Bob. You know, you might have you know, we all have our, our ego wounds and everything like that, you know. Yeah. Then you have, you know, an addiction added to that. And of course, all of that has to be accounted for. But all of us are suffering, man. I was dying from depression. I wanted to kill yes. myself. All the time, my brother killed himself in my home. Yeah. You know, I mean it's not it's not just addicts who have issues. We all have issues that have to be yeah. worked on. And how I worked with this thing. My name's Sean. I'm an alcoholic, and go to meeting. I, I said, you know, when you are actually alcohol is controlling your life, twenty four seven. The first thing you think about mm-hmm. when you wake up and you feel like, oh my god, I got to take aspirin and have a drink, and right. you know, hair of the dog and get through the day and drink more. I mean, it's, yes. I mean, the your addictive self is the controlling eye. Yes. it is calling all the shots, and that's in the latter stages of addiction, not right. at the mid stages, not at the beginning. But mm-hmm. you know, you know, you walk in that person, you can smell them from twenty feet away he's just saturated with demon rum or whatever he's drinking that it's really accurate to say he's an alcoholic okay because that's a controlling eye as you begin to get out of that and you the the addictive self begins to lose its power it'll always be there okay I don't think it ever quite goes away but the healthy self grows and the sick self begins to lose its power to control then it's really accurate to say I have an addiction but you know, I'm not drinking. and I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm a depressive, okay? And I still have that. You know, I, it comes back. And back, you know, I've been doing this kind of integral practice in meditation for about 11 years, I think now, maybe more. And I have had maybe six or seven episodes of this deep stuff. And I know how to work with it. You know, I just start meditating two or three hours a day using the brain entrainment stuff. And I recognize that I have a lot of mindfulness around it but it's deep and it's horrible and it's painful. And at this point, it, it it it's also a gift. Because by the way, Johnny boy, you're not the only one in the world who suffers. Ooh, people are suffering and you can get in touch with that and you hold that in your own suffering and realize, God, you know, how many people who've lost their homes and their family have been killed in war or starved or this or that or starving to death right now or not feeling grief and despair and depression, it's like, We all are, you know, at some level. And at that point of compassion, once it's accepted and once it's completely just embraced, hopefully with an expanded level of consciousness where you can hold it in this bigger, uh, infinitely loving, you know, sea of consciousness that the mystics and that we experience in deep meditation, prayer, you can hold that. And then from that compassion, which comes from the, the Latin to suffer with begins to emerge. And so depression has been my gift. It changed my life, you know, yeah. I was a pretty cocky young man, all, you know, full of all my neurotic and shame and everything. But I presented a lot of people thought I was pretty arrogant. Maybe they still do. I don't know, but I was crushed and I still get that. And when I feel it coming on, I totally can sense it because it's, it's also a somatic thing for me. It's not just negative ideas. It's just this heavy, heavy thing. And it comes back and I deal with it and it keeps me, keeps me grateful, keeps me humble, keeps me, you know, in the game, keeps me practicing keeps me up from being, hey, I found the answer to happiness and the cure for all your stuff, you know, some kind of bullshit thing. No, we'll continue to suffer and you'll continue to have issues and your loved ones will die and you will get old and all the, you know, all the human stuff, but it changes the game with practice and depth work and and our connection with with source, higher power, God, spirit, however you want to say that. So, and, and eventually it becomes a gift. Yeah, this really kicked my ass. And. Blah blah blah. But if we work with it, we can really transmute all that suffering in a humble way. That that it becomes a source of source of our, our our spirituality and our how we behave and who we are in the world.
0: John, I really appreciate what you said there. That it's so important to take it outside of yourself. It's not you know me and my shame and my disease and all this, but that reminder that there are other people out there in the world suffering that I can go into a meditative state and expand that consciousness is really important, not only to managing the symptoms of the disease, but to growth and evolution as, as a person and as a transcendent soul. Um, one of the most valuable integral practice, one of the first and most fundamental ones, and one of the most valuable ones too, is that of getting outside yourself by taking the role of another. and bringing that to recovery, I think that's part of why it's so powerful to listen to other people's stories, too, because it gets you outside of yourself and your shame and your suffering to see that you're not alone. It's important to do that, too. Um, On the Cushman, have that tool that you have developed through meditative practice for those times when you're not in a meeting or can't put on the podcast or or whatever it is that you do to, to be able to get outside yourself when you need to. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a line from a poem by the Persian poet Rumi. John, you and I have shared this before, but it came to mind as I was listening to you. And it, it owns the fact that, that we're afflicted, mm-hmm. but it, it has a turning with that that I really like. It's just this single line. A prophet's soul is especially afflicted because it has to become so powerful. I think sometimes if we can look at our addictions, John, the way that you were talking about your depression, our afflictions, if we can look at them the way the ancient Greeks did, which is that their view was that our destiny causes the present as much as the past does is that, yeah, I uh, toxic shame and trauma, et cetera, certainly predisposed me to addiction, but I also have a fate to make a difference in the world. And if I don't have compassion, the way you're talking, Doug. If I don't have, and you too, uh, John, if I don't have that, it's going to severely limit what I can bring to the world. And I think I was a very late bloomer, you guys. And part of my late blooming was encountering addiction at midlife. But the last uh, five to 10 years, there's no precedent. There's no way that the last five or 10 years could have been what they are in terms of, what I bring to the world were it not for addiction and thank God for recovery. And I think about that often. I taught psychology for decades uh, with a good heart, with a fundamentally good heart, but I'm so aware of what I missed in my teaching because I was not this acquainted with grief, this acquainted with, yeah. with uh, uh, suffering, this uh, acquainted with humility. And so when I open my mouth now, it connects all the way down to places that were not even accessible before. Mm-hmm. What do they call it in uh, in the uh, Latin? The happy fault. What is it? Yeah, Felix, the, the fatal.
1: Yeah, Felix Kuba, the happy Felix. sin. Somebody mistranslated it. Yeah, but the, the fatal flaw. And yeah. it's where it's yeah. where pathology yeah. becomes path. Yeah, Your darkness and suffering becomes yeah. the, the journey through that.
2: Yeah. And and there's
1: yeah. a there's a great book, Spiritual Bypassing, yeah. by uh, Robert Augustus Masters, a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. And he says that any spiritual path, any psychology that avoids the suffering, avoids the pain, is nothing but uh, pathology waiting to be born. You know, it's split off and it's a premature enlightenment. You know, let's just like step off the wheel of karma and dissociate and and be in the bliss and light. And it's like, and all all the true paths lead you into the darkness. And if you take the, the story of Jesus and the crucifixion, not as a literal historical thing, but it might've been, I don't know. I wasn't there, but uh, some people said that. So anyway, let's not get into that. But the fact that, that Jesus had to willingly submit to like this most horrible death you can imagine and go through this crucifixion and torture and death, and that's really what it feels like sometimes in practice when we're in the depths of our despair. I mean, I've just been to some places where the suffering absolutely, I just disappear into nothing but suffering. And I think, well, it's over. There's no way, you know, Humpty Dumpty can be put back together after this. And sure enough, Humpty Dumpty does get put back together, but in a way that's like when they come through it, you feel like, you know, you've been taken apart and everything's been cleansed and purified. And you come through with great, great connection and humility and compassion for others and yourself. I mean, it's a tremendous thing. But then it's like that crucifixion, and of course, in the story, he gets taken down from the cross. He goes underground and deals with all the shadow stuff of the whole human race, and he comes back in a way that's an enlightened being that has a whole new, you know, energy and, and body. So you can say that is a beautiful wisdom story of what has to happen in order for the resurrection into this next version of ourselves. And I think um, I think it happens a lot. I think we progressively die and are reborn into higher versions of ourselves. And if it was just once for over, it'd really be nice. But in my experience, we're called to constantly be dying and be, being reborn over and over. So
2: in a, this life. There's, there's a tricky piece here, you guys, and I want to uh, ask you what your thoughts are about it. And my thinking is changing about this, even related to one uh, instance this week at the treatment center. As I would have said in the past, and then I'm going to revise it, I would have said in the past that you have to be careful when you introduce what we're talking about to clients or friends that are in the midst of early recovery, is that when somebody's in the hellhole of what we're talking about, to talk about destiny or obstacles being passes, understandably, the response sometimes isn't really the one we were expecting. And, and I, I, I've, I've held to that. But I want to tell you guys a story. Is that this week I was, I was leading the men's group, and one of the individuals said that even in his addiction, he had this thought. And he probably was going to need to follow this all the way to hitting bottom in order to grow. And he felt like he somehow needed to follow this all the way down. Now, the other members of the group said, well, that sounds like rationalization and denial. And we all agreed to that. I said, yeah. But then I looked at him, I looked at this man and I said, I don't know you so well. So you'll have to tell me, have you experienced in your life times in your life challenges, maybe outside of addiction? where you need, you knew you needed to follow something through because you needed to build, let's say, muscles inside that would come no other way. And I said, you can tell me no, and it's fine, but I, I don't want to let it go with just the first answer that all of us have. And what was cool about it, you guys, is he said, yes. And he gave examples in romantic relationships where there was something that he knew he needed to go through to, in a sense, kind of uh, burnish, to develop something. and His look of gratitude to have this piece named, and you guys, this guy is weeks into recovery, which is really changing my thinking about this, so that what we're talking about certainly applies to me if I'm solid in my own recovery, but maybe early in my recovery to have this named is that some part of what's happening here is an unfolding of my fate in such a way that I can be stronger and make a difference in the world. I saw it take for this guy, and I wouldn't have predicted it, so early in recovery from serious drugs. This in this case is meth. Any thoughts on that, you guys? Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I can understand why everybody in the meeting winced when he said that, you know, because often yeah. that could be an excuse. Like, oh, I yeah. want to be a I wanna be a young corpse, if you're like a four on the Enneagram, and I'll just go out in a blaze of yeah. alcohol and heroin or something right, like that. Right, 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 right. And that. And that's the other side. And the other yes. side is absolutely what you're saying. It's that sometimes there's no other way. That the universe can make us and remake us and break us, yeah. except through extreme suffering, and I think wisest of us would not have to go all the way down. Maybe somebody said, a "Student of mine, you hit bottom when you stop digging." You know, you make a choice about that, or you can at least, if you're an addict, that's does mean you just say, "Oh, I'm going to quit." You reach out and say, "Help!" I can't quit,
0: and that's that's the existential choice that's given. Doug, what do you well, think? I think there's a big problem in there with lack of hope. Sometimes you feel like, sure, you you hit bottom when you stop digging, but You also can't see the light at the top because there's no hope and you don't... Bobby, you were talking about having that shame block you from the gifts you can offer to the world. Absolutely. But there's a level of shame too where you can't see that you have anything to offer in the first place. And so you just keep going because there's that worthless and there's that hopelessness that you don't see any way out of. And so sure, you keep on digging until you hit the bottom, until you can't go any further because you don't see any reason to climb out of it. and that's one of the really important things to address in early recovery too because having hope and believing that something is possible and worthwhile to do, especially something as challenging in all dimensions as recovery, you need to believe that it's possible and have something worth doing to hope for. And when you're so ashamed of who you are and what you may or may not have to give, it's hard to see unless unless you have help.
2: Yeah, I have to tell you guys something. When I looked at that guy this week, this is just a few days ago when i looked at him you can see it restoring hope in the interaction and i really think the interaction was grace i don't think this was like some skills thing that i brought to it per se it was like in the moment it's like seeing him as something other than rationalization seeing him as something other than just being shameworthy seeing that there is a spark inside of him that does have hope and if i if i miss this opportunity i've missed a golden opportunity there's something about if he can't fight, I'm thinking of what you just said, Doug, I totally agree with you. In fact, there's shame about shame. I'm so ashamed that I can't even tell you how ashamed I am. Yeah. And at sometimes the only thing that we're left with is what the neuroscientists now call co-regulation. And on Wednesday, that's what I think was provided there, is that I was just given that moment to reach across and see this guy. And in my seeing him, he was able to see himself. And maybe the clouds opened up just a little bit there. And so we this is where the fellowship in the various 12-step programs, the fellowship that we have right now in this community that we're creating right now, it's where it really has concrete result. is that maybe I can't see myself because I'm so flipping ashamed, but maybe you see me, and maybe one day I'll be reminded of who I am when I look in your eyes. And a really important component that goes along with that is the lack
0: of judgment. You really see me for who I am and what I can be, and you accept me. Yeah. Two. that's just bedrock to overcoming that shame and starting to change yeah and
1: you may have to see that in the eyes of another yeah before you can see it in yourself and that's a true with early recovery it's like you're gonna have to have some good healthy auxiliary egos and loving egos around you just to hold you and, and to get you through that first stage because it's just so crippling and all your strengths and all your virtues and all your courage and all your nobility and all your love it just been battered, beaten in the ground. I'm talking about late-stage addiction. As we said, it's progressive. You know, it doesn't start out like that. But at that point, you have to say, help. And I'll do whatever I have to do. And you guys tell me what to do. I just don't even know anymore. I know I can't use, that's for yeah. sure.
2: I, I I do an exercise sometimes. It just comes up spontaneously for me with this men's group. And it it's inspired by Mother Teresa, <laughs> is that what I'll say in the group is I'll say, can you guys look at each other and do something that I do sometimes when I'm looking at you Can you look at each other and imagine me or other guys in the group when they were five or or whatever age you can imagine where you would see John and Doug and Bob as little Johnny, little Dougie, little Bobby as just innocence. And they can do that. They can do that. They can look at each other. I mean, I'm sitting in a room with guys that are tattooed and pierced and drug addled, that toll that's taken on their bodies, our bodies. And we can get back to that beginner's mind approach. It's what Mother Teresa said is that when she was in Calcutta working with the lepers, that she saw Christ in every one of their eyes. I just like, that's really left a lasting impression on me, is that if I can see this addict in front of me, or if you can see the addict in front of you that is me, and if you can see Christ in my eyes, if you can see that five-year-old Bobby in there, it's pre-addict, that is that innocent, you've made a major step towards healing me. The psychoanalyst Heinz Kohat said, every one of us wants to be the gleam in our mother's eye. It's like, can I be the gleam in your eye? And the gift that you give is a non-contingent or it's unconditional love and acceptance and value. That itself is transformative, isn't it? And I can take that in. I can internalize that with some practice. I begin to see myself the way you see me it's easier, I think, in
1: the beginning to begin to see that in others. You still don't quite believe yeah. it in yourself. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and that's really, you know, and it's interesting how this conversation about addiction is leading into some of the deepest levels of, of human experience and consciousness and healing and ultimate meanings. And it's amazing. You know, that's the gift of this disease. It has taught us so much. And, you know, talking about getting back to the five-year-old, what I would take my students out to the wilderness, you know, about week four, these <laughs> thugs and addicts and rebellious, hateful, painy-ass teenagers would just start turning into some of the most marvelous people they ever met on the planet. Oh, my God. You know, if you plant these guys in the right seed, they yeah. bloom. And I just felt so much love and respect. And at that point, they knew, even though I was boss and blah, 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 they knew I loved them. They could see it in my eyes because I did. And they would be truly John Swan. Of course, the scary damn thing was, yeah, eventually you had to send them home. So you have these new little saplings that are starting to grow. Still the work, still the work.
2: More to follow on that as well.
1: Hey, everybody, thank you for hanging in there with us. Doug, you want to tell them anything about the follow-up or how they can contact or send in questions, et cetera? If you like what
0: you're hearing so far, if you, if you want to join more, I would encourage all of you to become a part of this community and share in the journey with us. Subscribe to the podcast, click uh, subscribe here on the webpage, integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash podcast. Thanks. Brilliant. Jim. Thank you, hey, John. Bless God bless. You. Namaste, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.